This is a crisis in our world to make us not exercise our right to vote. Oh. Must be election day. In America. Again. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't for a chance. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hello. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's Great AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day for you on the internet, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today no you are not crazy you are not imagining it yes right now down is up up is down coronavirus infection rates are indeed spiking in a whole bunch of states around the u.s despite everyone collectively pretending that our long national nightmare our long global nightmare is over it isn't but much of the nation right now is pretending that it is. And also, too, no, the economy is not back. The worst is not behind us, despite the irrational exuberance of Wall Street in the stock market right now. But again, much of the nation is now pretending that all is well. It isn't. You are not crazy. You are not crazy unless you think that the worst of the coronavirus is behind us and the economy has come rip-roaring back to where it was before the global pandemic struck. Even then, you might not be crazy, but you would be falling for the propaganda that is emanating from the White House, which would really love for you to believe all of those things right now, despite the mountain of evidence that strongly suggests otherwise. We will get to some of that in a bit, along with the guest to discuss how all of this, all of these collective nightmares all at once are all working out very well, at least for the billionaire class right now. But first, before we get there, Tuesday was 
uh, election day in Georgia. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and huh. I and I and I laugh ruefully because I know how badly how badly it's going. And uh, how much we tried to warn. We I know. tried our best to warn about this. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. So yeah, it was election day in Georgia and West Virginia, and uh, as we've also been warning for a very long time in response to officials pretending there that all is well, all is not well. At least not for thousands of voters who simply want to vote and vote safely. In the presidential primary election that was twice postponed due to the coronavirus in Georgia and which has now led to predictably huge lines to vote across, uh, well, predictably some of the most minority heavy parts of the state and coincidentally the most Democratic leaning parts of the state. Who could have foreseen it? Right. We did. It's why we have been covering Georgia so closely on this show for so long, and the Peach State will be even more important this November when the state will be competitive in the presidential election for the first time in decades. And they'll have not one, but two U.S. Senate races on the ballot in November, along with important congressional and state elections as well. So, yes, Georgia matters. Let's uh, start just before Tuesday's disaster in Georgia. As Tierney Sneed reported over at TPM, Georgia is the latest state to see a major, if predictable, surge in absentee voting in the midst of the pandemic. Ahead of its primary on Tuesday, elections officials by Sunday had received some 943,000 ballots. That's a 2,500% increase from the 2016 presidential election, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Wow, a 2,500% increase? Well, yeah, you know, there's a pandemic on. Of the 1.2 million who had already voted before Election Day on Tuesday, that's a number that includes in-person early voting, which ended on Friday, not, by the way, on Saturday or Sunday when it would have been really useful on a weekend when people had more time to vote and more time to wait in lines, long lines if necessary. But it ended on Friday, a work day, when it's much harder to take a day off to vote. And why is that? Well, because they would prefer that people do not vote on Saturday or Sunday, particularly those at uh, churches Black churches who have traditionally used Sundays for souls to the polls day. In any event, of those 1.2 million who had already been reported as uh, having voted by Monday, there's reportedly an even split between Democrats and Republicans in those numbers, in those ballots that have been returned. And because it's a primary, we can track who's voting in the Dem on the Democratic side, who's on the Republican side. But an increase of 2,500% does sound encouraging. That number, however, may or may not be uh, as encouraging as it sounds. The state sent absentee ballot request forms to its 6.9 million active registered voters. Now, active is defined by Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, so it could exclude a lot of voters. Remember, he's, uh, well, one of the Brads that give us all a bad name here on the Bradcast. Ultimately, 1.6 million absentee ballots were sent out. So that means that some 657,000 absentee ballots were requested but not returned, according to the AJC. 
So that's about a third of voters who filled out their absentee ballot request forms, but for some reason had yet to return them as of Monday night, or they had not yet come back to county headquarters to be uh, received by election officials. That is, if those voters actually received those ballots in the first place. We have... Seen and heard a lot of reports today of uh, voters requesting absentee ballots but never actually receiving them and now being forced to decide on Election Day if it is safe for them to vote in person during a pandemic on the state's brand new $1.4 million, 100% unverifiable disease vector touchscreen voting machines that Brad Raffensperger insisted that all voters All voters across the state must use for the first time at the polls this year across the entire state of Georgia. More on that in a moment. You will be shocked to learn. But the problem of voters not receiving their absentee ballots in the mail as requested was also seen in some of the approximately one dozen or so states that held elections last Tuesday. Last week, voters in both Washington, D.C. and the key battleground state of Pennsylvania, they were hit particularly hard as the use of absentee voting in uh, did skyrocket in both jurisdictions last week and elsewhere around the country as voters are trying to stay safe in the middle of an ongoing pandemic. There was evidence of racial disparities, you'll be shocked to learn. In Georgia, in which voters were requesting to vote absentee, according to the uh, Brennan Center analysis, with black voters reportedly making up a disproportionate percentage of the voters casting in-person early ballots, as if to say they might not have received their ballots or they might not have received their ballot application uh, or they might not have requested one in the first place. There were ridiculously long lines at those early early voting sites on Friday, the last day of early voting, with some voters waiting more than six hours, reportedly, to cast a ballot at an early voting site. Six hours in a pandemic. And in some pretty bad heat to boot, by the way, water had to be passed out. There were reports of people fainting while trying to vote in Georgia. Georgia, like many states, has reduced polling places, both both early voting places and uh, in-person Election Day polling places because of the challenges of COVID-19 and the social distancing requirements that further limited the number of people who could be inside the voting sites that did remain open. So they had to wait outside in the heat. I think today I saw it was some 84 degrees and storms were on 78 percent humidity storms on the way. Yep. Yep. Fulton County, the most populous county in Georgia and the most Democratic leaning in Atlanta, I believe they experienced notable delays in receiving their mail in ballots for some reason in Fulton County. The delay was reportedly caused in part by election uh, elections offices being closed for several days about a month ago after an employee there died of COVID-19. Yeah, that'll slow things up. According to an AP report, election officials also blame technical issues in processing ballot requests that were submitted by mail. Voters in Gwinnett County, uh, the most African-American county in the state, they also reported that uh, they did not receive some absentee ballots that they had requested as of Monday. So they, too, were forced to risk their lives to vote on Tuesday in America. So there are just tons of disastrous reports now. So that was before Election Day. 
Now we've got tons of disastrous reports coming out of Georgia's in-person voting on Tuesday, or at least attempts to vote at in-person voting from all sorts of different sources. Uh, We're seeing them come in on Twitter and Facebook. But for the the moment here, I'm going to focus just on the blow-by-blow reports, some of them, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is not great on these issues, by the way. So if they're reporting so many problems, it might give you an idea of just how bad things were for voters on Tuesday in the primary uh, election in Georgia, which, God help us all, could be a... Pretty terrible omen for what we could well see there in November. So in chronological order, just from some of AJC's uh, Tuesday reportage, starting at 7.20 a.m., about 300 voters lined up at Park Tavern in Piedmont Park preparing for a significant wait to vote, 300 of them. Many voters said they requested absentee ballots, but never received them. Candace Tucker, the first voter in line, said she arrived at 5.30 a.m. so she could vote in person after her absentee ballot application was not processed by Fulton County. She said poll workers struggled for a few minutes to get the state's new voting machine started, but she she liked them once they were working. Tucker uh, said it was very easy. It was a lot easier to read. It was large and bright. And, of course, that has been one of the complaints in lawsuits against the state's new touchscreen ballot marking device systems because they are so large and bright that they can be seen from about 30 feet across the precinct giving up the voters' right to a secret ballot in the process. 8.05 a.m., problems with voting machines slowed down voters in the Adamsville neighborhood of Atlanta. Bernice Smith, who is 78 years old, she showed up in a mask around 6 a.m. to vote. She was among the first in line. She finally voted and left just before 8 a.m. So she showed up at 6 a.m. She voted by 8 a.m., 8 78 years old, a two-hour wait in line, even though she was one of the first in line. She was given, by the way, a paper ballot because the machines weren't working. So she uh, started to vote. She said that the the new machines were terrible because she was given a paper ballot, but when the machine started, she decided to use that. And, well, you know, that's why she had to wait, I guess, for two hours, despite being first in line, trying to wait for those terrible machines to work. 8.15 a.m., precincts opened late at several voting locations in Cobb County, DeKalb County, Fulton County. Uh, These are all counties in or around Atlanta. Some voting locations struggled to start new voting computers, including touchscreens and vote check-in computers, According to uh, the group Fair Fight, uh, Fair Fight Action, uh, other precincts didn't receive equipment that they needed until well after polls were supposed to open. So the the problems included the check-in computers, the electronic poll books, and the computer touchscreen systems. 8:20, all eight voting machines at Stevenson High School and Stone Mountain are down, reportedly. It doesn't make any sense that they're all broken. I'm outraged, said voter Lila Hicks, adding, I plan on staying. My vote needs to be counted. Uh, 8.24 a.m., State Rep. William Body says Fulton County is in a, quote, complete meltdown. We're having issues throughout the county, said the East Point Democrat. Did they not know this was going to be a voting day for months? It is inexcusable, he said. 
8.45 a.m., about 140 voters at Central Park Recreation Center were being told they'll have to vote with paper provisional ballots because voting machines are also not working there. 8.50 a.m., several precincts in Gwinnett County had few voting machines. Again, the most African-American part of the state had few voting machines. Now, why would that be? leaving voters waiting with no end in sight. According to State Rep. Jasmine Clark, voters are livid or they are leaving. Voters are being asked to vote provisional but are not being reassured that their votes will be counted tonight if they do, she said. 9 a.m., long lines during early voting forced Samuel Aboquelu, 44, and his wife to vote on Tuesday. They had tried to vote during election uh, three times before Election Day during early voting, but the waits there were extensive each time. On Tuesday, it took him 40 minutes to vote. It was better, but it was still a long wait to vote, he said. We normally wait and vote in November in the main elections, but with all that's going on, we felt like we have to be a more active participant. I understand that change happens on a local level, he said. Well, you understand correctly, Samuel, and thank you for going through the hell that you had to to at least try and make your vote count. 9.05 a.m., the elections official in charge of implementing the state's new voting system, Gabriel Sterling, said most problems are occurring in Fulton County. All counties were forced by the state to use these electronic touchscreen machines and the electronic check-in poll book computers, even though at least one county had announced that they were going to use hand-marked paper ballots instead until the state threatened to sue them if they did not use the unverifiable, faulty, easily hacked, oft-failed new touchscreen voting systems instead. Sterling, however, claimed that the reason for most of the problems is that some election workers tried to insert voter cards created by the computer e-poll book systems for use in the touchscreen voting, computer touchscreen voting systems, uh, tried to insert those voter cards upside down, he said. So blaming the poll workers, I guess. 9, 10 a.m., a poll worker told voters waiting in line, at the Hoyt Smith Recreation Center, the voting machines were delivered to the wrong address, according to a voter there. She said she got in line at 7.25 a.m., was still waiting more than an hour and a half later. Voters were told they'd have to use paper ballots instead because, you know, you don't have to boot up a hand-marked paper ballot or put the voter card in them the right way. You just vote on them with a pen. Voters were having to rely on paper provisional ballots in some precincts where voting machines were not working, but some places like Cross Keys High ran out of provisional ballots, the Journal-Constitution reports at 9.17 a.m. Of course, they ran out of provisional ballots. Jonathan Barnes, the precinct manager, said the precinct had less than two dozen provisional ballots to hand out. They told us none of the machines are working. The provisional ballots are long gone, said a waiting voter. This is blatant voter suppression, she said. How are these machines not working? How indeed. At Central Park Recreation Center, voting equipment was not working, causing Leandra Martin to leave after waiting for nearly an hour and a half. She said poll workers had been calling for help since 5 a.m. Martin and others are voting with provisional ballots until the uh, issue gets fixed. In the meantime... In the time of COVID-19, she said she did not feel comfortable licking the provisional ballots, but she had to do her civic duty. So also, good luck to the elections officials who have to open it. 
They couldn't supply self-sealing envelopes in the middle of a pandemic? Of course not. It's Georgia. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms uh, said voters are experiencing widespread problems at the polls as of 9.30 a.m. Voting machines weren't working and the line stretched down the street, Bottoms wrote on Twitter at the Sandtown Recreation Center. Problems at 10.25 a.m. With Georgia's new voting computers plagued the state's primary elections, poll workers said they had difficulties turning on voter check-in computers, difficulty encoding voter access cards, and difficulty installing touchscreens. Sounds just like what we saw here in Los Angeles, by the way, on this year's March 3rd Super Tuesday primary with our new unverifiable touchscreen voting systems and check-in computers. Fulton County Commissioner Liz Hausman said it took her two hours and 40 minutes on Tuesday morning to vote. She's a county commissioner. She said she'd never seen a line so long, even for a presidential election. Once again, a reminder, this is the primary election with much lower turnout than is expected in Georgia on November 3rd. Hausman said poll workers called for tech help. They were not able to get through. She said she's hearing about similar problems at precincts throughout the county. Houseman, who represents North Fulton County, said she hopes that the she had hoped that the 15 million dollars that the county budgeted to run elections would be enough for a smooth process. She said we gave them everything they asked for. South Fulton City Councilwoman Catherine Rowell said lines backed up when polls supposed to be were supposed to be open and election workers told voters that the tech was not working correctly as of 11.05 a.m. A poll worker told Rowell that the problem was with an electronic counter to account for votes cast, whatever that means. Voting began there uh, more than an hour late, Rowell said. Hundreds of people were waiting at Atlanta's Grant Park neighborhood at 7 a.m. Uh, one voter was still in line at 10.30 a.m., so three and a half hours later. Confusion surrounded voting at Barack Obama Elementary School in South DeKalb uh, as of 11.35 a.m. because, uh, said one voter who arrived at 6.50 a.m. because she never received the absentee ballot that she requested. The stories go on and on and on. Running out of provisional ballots, machines not working, 80-year-olds uh, standing in line as of 6 a.m., waiting in line for hours to vote. What is going on in Georgia, said Anita Hurd, an 80-year-old. We have been waiting for hours. This is ridiculous. This is unfair. Georgia House Speaker David Ralston ordered an investigation of these irregularities as of 12.35 p.m., particularly in Fulton County. He said the sanctity of our elections being free and fair is the very foundation of our system of government. Ralston is a Republican from Blue Ridge. Our elections must be efficient and voters must be confident that their votes will be counted and counted properly. Of course, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's office said that the problems with voting equipment were caused by poll workers' mistakes. So you knew this was coming. He blamed the poll workers, the poll workers who are endangering their lives to work in terrible conditions during a pandemic. He blamed them for not knowing how to use the crappy machines that he forced them to use. It happens like clockwork with these jerks.
So the fight over uh, who was responsible uh, as of 1.45 today was beginning to heat up. Raffensperger said he uh, launched an investigation of the problem in Fulton and DeKalb. He called the situation there unacceptable. Oh, really? How'd that happen, Brad? Local officials say the Secretary of State bears responsibility. Steve Bradshaw, the DeKalb County uh, Commission's presiding officer, called the voting issues a disgrace. I would say so. It's astounding to me what an abdication of leadership that is, he said, referring to Raffensperger. To push the ownership down to down to the counties, he said, before Raffensperger had issued his statement. Bradshaw said, I was uh, I was raised that if you mess up, you fess up. Well, not our Raffensperger, not our Brad. Now, a civil rights group is calling for the polls to stay open uh, late in uh, uh, several counties around Atlanta. Some of them will be held open for an extra hour. But uh, one voter here who had waited for all of these hours to get to vote, some uh, three hours, got to vote. Uh, He finally did and reported that the scanner that reads the paper ballot was down, making him unsure if his vote actually counted. Yes, if you're keeping track at home, the system uses a third computer at the polls after the computer poll book and after the computer ballot marking device that they use instead of a pen. Then that paper ballot produced by that ballot marking device has to be scanned by a third computer, an optical scan computer. That wasn't working by the time this voter was finally allowed to vote after more than three hours. DeKalb County uh, CEO Michael Thurman issued a statement ripping Brad Raffensperger for a, quote, failure of leadership and calling for a state investigation of his office. And I'm not sure where this woman was voting today, uh, but I suspect she speaks for a lot of uh, Georgia voters. Guys, I'm terrified. I ran for office. I worked for President Obama in the White House. This is wrong. This is America. Please, God, help us. I mean it. This is a crisis in our world to make us not exercise our right to vote. I tweeted all the major networks. So everybody tweet the networks. Everybody, please. The radio stations, everybody. Tweet everybody, please everybody. We cannot tolerate this. Let's work together. I love you. I'm I'm just sick. I have to go home to take medicine. But I love you. I love you too. (laughs) Yeah, tweet all the networks. Tweet all the radio stations. Not ours. We got the message. That's what went on on Tuesday in Georgia as voters were trying to vote in America in the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of Georgia. Not sure which is worse. Meanwhile, voting in other areas of the state reportedly was smooth as silk. Just one more piece of inequality to keep in mind next time you are marching amid a pandemic for equal justice and equal rights for all. We will, as you might suspect, continue to cover this story and maybe even some election results out of Georgia on our next broadcast and all of this the vote the fight to vote and the fight to stay alive while voting even as 14 states and puerto rico hit their highest ever seven-day average for new cases today new cases of coronavirus while a whole bunch of folks continue to pretend that the pandemic is oh it's fine it's over it's time to open for business though it is decidedly not but you know what 
You want to talk about inequality? Don't mention any of this to the billionaires of Wall Street. For them, life has never been better. Really. Pandemic schmandemic. Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies joins us next to discuss the billionaire bonanza 2020. I'm Brad Friedman, not Raffensperger, and you are listening to the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Oh yeah, it's hilarious. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The economists of the National Bureau of Economic Research, the group that determines when recessions begin and end, have officially declared that we are now in a recession. That's probably not much of a surprise given the severe economic hit due to the coronavirus. What is slightly more surprising, however, is that the recession, according to the group, started in February of this year, before COVID initially bottomed out the market and, and long before the virus-related shutdowns and layoffs began. The U.S. economy entered a recession in February, ending the longest expansion on record. The economists uh, said that employment, income, and spending peaked in February and then fell sharply afterwards as the viral outbreak shut down businesses across the country, marking the start of the downturn after nearly 11 full years of economic growth. 11 full years. So for the math impaired, yes, I'm speaking to you, MAGA people. Uh, 11 years ago was 2009. So that as uh, that was eight years of Barack Obama's administration, continued by another three years of Trump's administration until everything crashed on his watch beginning in February of this year. And then the virus struck, sending everything south. Well, not everything. Apparently, as millions of Americans remain on the unemployment rolls, the stock market has, for some reason, rebounded. On Tuesday, the Nasdaq even briefly topped 10,000 for the first time ever, making a record high for the third straight day there. The Dow and the S&P 500 have been seeing similar rallies of late, bringing the index's value to near where they were before the coronavirus crash in March tanked the markets by about 30 percent. So what's going on here? Coronavirus cases are increasing around the country, yet states and counties are opening for business. A record number of unemployment claims continue to pile in across the country now for 10 weeks in a row. And yet the stock market continues to rally. Up is down and down is up somehow in our twisted American moment in the Trump era where the president of the United States and his allies in states around the nation and yes, on Wall Street 
seem to have a perverse incentive for some reason to pretend their way out of these ongoing and, yes, very real, despite what you have may have read or heard, these very real nightmares, ongoing nightmares that do not respond much to pretending, but you can try. It's certainly not keeping the billionaires on Wall Street from doing their patriotic best. Our friend David Dayen, financial investigative journalist at the American Prospect, reports today that it's not controversial to say that bankruptcy usually signals bad news for investors. Creditors get paid first and the most likely scenario wipes out shareholders entirely. But in the LOL nothing matters world of the 2020 stock market, bankruptcy is now a buy opportunity. Shares of Hertz, which filed for bankruptcy amid massive amounts of debt a couple of weeks back, have actually gone up a lot since that announcement. It's now trading significantly higher than it was before the bankruptcy. Part of this reflects the fact that Hertz owns a bunch of cars and that physical inventory could leave money for investors even after the creditors are made whole, but... He says it's also begin, uh, being driven up on hopes of recovery, which for bankrupt firms is completely nuts. And he says Hertz is not alone. J.C. Penney's stock has doubled since they announced bankruptcy. So has Whiting Petroleum, despite the oil glut at one point that led uh, crude into negative territory just a few weeks back. Yes, they were actually paying people to take the oil off their hands because they ran out of storage space and could not stop pumping at the same time, even as a lack of drivers on the road throughout the pandemic lockdowns also helped to just crash oil prices. The exuberance writes, Dayan has gotten so irrational on Wall Street that companies likely for liquidation are being bid up. The Federal Reserve bailout of investors has created a market uplift, he reports, that does not discriminate against even dead firms. People are stuffing their money in on the expectation that the Fed will sprinkle magic dust and make everything better. And since that has worked for a decade now, why not keep going? Why not even in bankruptcy? The Nasdaq hit a record high on Tuesday, and the S&P 500 is positive for the year. Positive for the year. This year, this pandemic year, when much of the nation and indeed much of the world is on lockdown with businesses shuttered everywhere still and millions of Americans newly out of work. Markets this irrational, says Dayan, do not usually end well. Maybe, but don't tell that to the billionaires. You, you may be begging and pleading for your first unemployment check and trying to figure out how to pay your rent or mortgage again this month to avoid eviction, but America's wealthy class, they have no such problems, it seems. U.S. billionaires' total wealth surged by over $565 billion. That's an increase of more than 19% since its low point near the beginning of the pandemic. That, according to an updated report by the Institute for Policy Studies, the figures date from March 18, the rough start of the pandemic shutdown when most federal and state economic restrictions were in place during the same 11 weeks. 42.6 million U.S. workers filed for unemployment, uh, almost 2 million in just the last week. In a, a turbulent week in the life of the nation, these statistics remind us that we 
are more economically and racially divided than at any time in decades, said Chuck Collins, co-author of the report Billionaire Bonanza 2020. Surging billionaire wealth juxtaposed with the suffering and plight of millions undermines the social solidarity required for us to recover together in the years ahead, he said. According to IPS calculations, during just the past week, the U.S. billionaire class experienced a $79 billion jump in total wealth in just the past week. Well, how did you do last week? Joining us now for hopefully an explanation of what the hell is going on here and what we somehow need to do about it is Chuck Collins of the Institute for Public Policy. He's the co-author of the Billionaire Bonanza 2020 study. He is an expert on U.S. inequality and the racial wealth divide and the director of the program on inequality and the common good at IPS, where he co-edits inequality.org. Chuck Collins, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hey, great to be with you, Brad. So, uh, okay, Chuck, in in this uh, Billionaire Bonanza 2020 report, you find that in the 11 weeks since March 18, there's about a dozen U.S. billionaires, uh, at least, have seen their wealth accelerate by enormous numbers. I want to just run through a couple of them here real quick and get your thoughts. Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon and, uh, to a lesser extent, I suppose, the Washington Post, he is up 30, more than $36 billion. His unprecedented wealth surge, you write, is larger than the gross domestic product of Honduras in 2018. Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook is up $30 billion. Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX is up $14 billion. Steve Ballmer, the uh, L.A. Clippers owner, former Microsoft CEO, he's seen his wealth go up $13 billion. Michael Bloomberg, the former Democratic presidential candidate for about five minutes and owner of the Bloomberg News Service, He's up $12 billion. Phil, uh, Phil Knight of Nike is up $11 billion. Warren Buffett, private equity baron, is up about $7 billion. Sheldon Adelson, the Las Vegas casino owner and the Republican Party funder, he's up more than $6 billion. So, Chuck, some of those guys I can understand. Bezos at Amazon, Zuckerberg at Facebook. But Tesla has not been able to make cars for about two months. And the L.A. Clippers had their season cut short. You know, how many people are buying Nikes right now or going to Vegas casinos, which have been closed for months? What is going on here? Where are these guys making their money right now? Well, a lot of a lot of this is about bets and people betting on stocks going up in the future. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the, we're talking about the Wall Street casino here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are people on that list who clearly are benefiting from sort of the pandemic economy. So like Steve Ballmer, mm -hmm. majority Microsoft shareholder, uh, you know, they own Zoom or uh, Skype and, and mm -hmm. uh, Teams. Eric Yon, who, who is the CEO of Zoom, has got $4 billion. He wasn't even on the billionaire list before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, so some of them are clearly benefiting from the pandemic uh, because of their business niche, and others are just riding an up market, a gambling casino market, where actually when unemployment goes up and wages are low, Profits are high. So stock markets generally love high profits and low wages, and that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. That's the way the market is wired. 
Is that is that um, why we have seen uh, seemingly each week as these uh, new terrible unemployment numbers come out on the same day that they say, oh, six million uh, new jobless claims, three million new jobless claims that we tend to see the stock market sort of go through the roof every time Americans are fired? Yeah, no, that's that is, you know, uh, competition for for workers drives wages down. And, and the other thing is that a lot of the gambling is around any positive news about research, anything that might be a flicker of light in the economy also kind of sends the market up. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's five companies, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. They account for a huge amount of the value of the S&P 500 right now. So when they're doing well, that sort of boosts the whole portfolio. Um, but, of course, as, as you know, you're... Wall Street is not the economy. Wall Street is mm-hmm. not the experience of most people in the economy. Only 14% of uh, Americans have direct investments in stock. So this tells us the story of sort of how the, the top 10%, and in this case, how the billionaires are seeing their wealth surge during an unfortunate time for everyone else. And, of course, it's not just the billionaires. I presume there are millionaires who are making out very well in this particular market, which seems to be, uh, you know, going straight up, even as the economy is going straight down. I don't understand that. It does not seem sustainable. Um, And yet none of this is new. Uh, You you report in your uh, billionaire bonanza report that uh, this is simply a continuation of what we have seen since since the tax cutting craze of the 80s and 90s. Is that the reason for all of this? Is that the reason why there is so much extra money available to a certain segment of the population? Yeah, you know, I think we are we're now at the culmination of four decades of growing income and wealth inequality. Uh, As we went into the pandemic, we were at maybe our greatest unequal level since the Gilded Age. And and the reality is, and I thought your your, your introduction was terrific, I mean, in terms of giving a sweeping picture, but mm-hmm. really since, ni- since 2009, only about 20% of households have sort of recovered where they were in terms of savings and net worth prior to the Great Recession of mm-hmm. 2008. So think about that. 80% of households kind of went into the pandemic with a, economic hangover, mm-hmm. still not really fully back on their feet uh, in the last 11 years. So uh, this this recession and pandemic are going to supercharge the existing income and wealth inequalities that we already are living through. You, uh, you find that between 1990 and 2020, U.S. billionaire wealth soared 1,130 percent, an increase more than 200 times greater than the 5.3% growth of U.S. median wealth. Measured as a percentage of their wealth, the tax obligations of Americans' billionaires decreased 79% between 1980 and 2018. Uh, how does that compare to the, the, the tax obligations of America's non-billionaires during that same period? You know, the tax obligations of most people have pretty much stayed flat or even gone up just a little bit you know, over the last couple decades. Uh, so that's that's where you see the biggest uh, tax cuts, if mm-hmm. you will, at the very top. And the Trump and that and that data is really before the Trump tax cut fully kicks in, the uh, 2017 giveaway trillion dollar giveaway to the to the top. Um, but yeah, this is you know we're we're just kind of absorbing now the the pre-existing condition, if you will, of Mm -hmm. extreme inequality in America. 
Yeah, 78% of households are now living paycheck to paycheck, while 20% have zero or negative net worth. That is uh, somewhat obscene, frankly, uh, given the comparison uh, to all those numbers we've just been rattling through. So, uh, Chuck, this uh, inequality, which seems to be growing, your report does offer a number of recommendations. I'd like to fly through uh, some of them as quickly as we can here to get an idea of uh, you know, how and if this can ever be reversed, because, boy, I'll tell you what, the you know past uh, week or two, as the stock market continues to soar, it does not feel like it's going to be reversed. It feels like, well, you know, going back to John Edwards in 2004, it feels very much like two Americas, uh, to say the least. So some of the recommendations you offer establish a pandemic profiteering oversight committee that goes beyond oversight of stimulus funds. What does that mean specifically? Well, if you think back, you know, during World War II and the Korean War, uh, it was it was considered distasteful to make vast amounts of money when everyone else was making these huge sacrifices. Oh, how, that's actually how when, quaint! Uh, how quaint! Yes, it's, 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 it is. Yeah, um, and that's where actually uh, President Harry Truman kind of made his reputation. The Truman Committee mm-hmm. dragged these uh, company CEOs in front of his committee who were profiteering during World War II and just said, "Look, this is unacceptable, unseemly." Mm. Led to the passage of a. a you know, profiteering taxes during World War II and during the Korean War. So one thing you can do is, yeah, if uh, somebody's profiteering off, their, off the, the misfortunes of the whole rest of society, you just tax it and invest it in something like healthcare infrastructure. Um, so I think those are, those are examples. Of uh, of things that we could do right now, and and do you have? And I've got uh, a, a number of others that you've listed out, uh, and I'll probably ask the same questions on this. But do you have any sense that uh, Democrats are? Because I presume Republicans are not calling for this, but I don't even know if Democrats are calling for this, or if this is something that uh, Joe Biden would try to institute uh, if if he were to win this November. Well, you know, a lot of Democrats, as part of the, the first stimulus bill, really pushed hard. And there there actually are really good oversight committees mm-hmm. uh, that have been put in place to monitor the stimulus bill. And uh, obviously there's more that could be done. But and we're arguing that they should be doing, you know, audits on, on, on the racial wealth dimension impacts of this, mm-hmm. these policies, on which companies are, are kind of um, using taking tax dollars and, and moving their money offshore. So um, there is an appetite for oversight, and uh, it's not, you know, and even some Republicans understand there needs, if you're going to put out trillions of dollars of expenditures, somebody's got to mind a store. You call for levying an emergency 10% millionaire income tax. Now, uh, Elizabeth Warren proposed uh, something, I think, that was far less onerous during the uh, presidential uh, campaign, during the debates. She seems to have trouble winning support from it, uh, for it, e- even from fellow Democrats. Is there more of an appetite for a millionaire income surtax? And uh, you also call for uh, a federal estate tax. Uh, to be more progressive and to institute a wealth tax. It seems like we've been doing the opposite of all of those things for decades now. No, you're right. I mean, the the good news, Brad, is there's overwhelming support uh, among the general public for taxing the very rich. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the you know, I think a well, a, you know, even Republicans, a plurality of Republicans, supported Elizabeth Warren's two percent wealth tax idea. So the pressure is building. 
people understand the rich have been gaming the system and, and avoiding their taxes. One of the reasons we propose this 10% surtax is you can really, imp- you can sort of ramp it up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We have an income, income tax system in place, and you basically say any income over, over $3 million, you know, the top one-tenth of 1% uh, pays that 10% surcharge, whether it's capital gains, income from investments, or income from work, all taxed the same at that level. And uh, I think the principle is, look, when it comes around time to figure out how to pay for these trillion dollars of deficit spending, we should hold, you know, the 99% harmless for the first couple trillion. It should come from the billionaire class and, mm. the, and the top one, 10% who've, who've gotten most of the tax breaks over the last several decades. Doesn't that bring us back to uh, the, the the original problem that now seems to be baked into the cake? I mentioned Sheldon Adelson. Uh, his, uh, his fortunes are up more than $6 billion throughout this pandemic. A huge funder of the Republican Party, you know, as are all the folks who hang out with, uh, with Charles Koch and so many. And this is also on, on the left as well. You've got these billionaires and millionaires that seem to be funding the political system that now you, Chuck are, you know, calling on the political system to reverse their fortunes. It seems like it's not ultimately reversible if you have, uh, you know, the very people that are keeping the politicians in power are the ones who would be most hurt by these taxes. Well, you know, here we are. We're living in an oligarchy where the rich use their wealth and power to get more wealth and power. And, you know, the only way to reverse that, and and, and it was, uh, you know, we did reverse uh, the first Gilded Age, and it was because of people's movements and the emergence of the labor movement. It was also because of a depression and a war. But uh, it ultimately was people came together and said, we need to tax the rich, we need to tax inheritances, we need to break up dynasties and monopolies. It required, uh, you know, the fight of our lives. And uh, that, that's, what we're, that's what we're heading into. Heading uh, into... So I don't have it easy, <laughs> meaning I, I think, yeah. you know, the pressure is building from below, uh, it could go right-wing populist, you know, just like after the 2009, you know, recession lifted. You have both the right-wing Tea Party, but you also had Occupy and, mm-hmm. the, and the movements pushing to address uh, inequality and in the, in the concentration of wealth of the 1%. I think we're going to see, you know, the merger of Black Lives Matter and tax the billionaires and let's build uh, an economy that works for everybody, not just the rich. And... Uh, A lot of people would salute that program and maybe even get in the streets. Which is why some people are working so hard to keep those people from uh, getting into the ballot box, into the voting booth. Uh, Chuck Collins is an expert on U.S. inequality and the racial wealth divide. He's also the director of the program on inequality and the common good at the Institute for Policy Studies. He co-edits inequality.org, where you can read this this uh, billionaire bonanza 2020 study and his recommendations on what the hell we can do about it. His new book is Inequality in uh, I'm sorry, is inequality in America irreversible? You can find that also at inequality.org, and you can follow them on the Twitters at inequality.org, and you can follow Chuck and uh, harass him all you like on the Twitters at Chuck99 to 1. Chuck Collins, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you'll uh, join us again in the near future. Thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. All right, quick break, and Green News Report is next up. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. 
The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. What? I'm running late? Yes. (laughs) Let's get to it then. Our latest Green News Report. We're not out of the woods on COVID-19 yet. Hurricane season started last week. Boom, you know, we have the storm. Buckle up. Tropical Depression crystal balls impacts are not over yet. Footage released by the Russian Investigative Committee suggests the sheer volume of the spillage overwhelmed the concrete levees intended to contain minor leaks. Melting permafrost causes catastrophic oil spill in Russian Siberia. May 2020, the hottest May on record. Plus, Trump uses pandemic to justify new rollbacks of public health protections. Of course he does. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So April was global pandemic. May is massive nationwide protests over systemic racism. I assume June is a plague of locusts. Then in July, pleated pants are coming back. Actually, we already had a plague of locusts in June, but pleated pants? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I don't know if it's crystal ball, crystal ball, crystal ball, but it's having an impact across the U.S. right now. (laughs) Indeed. Tropical storm crystal ball made landfall near Grand Isle, Louisiana on Sunday, bringing torrential rains, flooding, and power outages. But now the flood threat is not over. Remnants of crystal ball could cause serious inland flooding as it heads up the Mississippi River Valley, where just a few weeks ago, torrential rains caused two dams to collapse in Michigan. Uh Uh-oh. Cristobal already broke the record for being the earliest in the Atlantic hurricane season for a third named system to form. If Cristobal remains a tropical depression when it crosses into Wisconsin, it would also break another record as being the first tropical depression ever recorded in Wisconsin. Mm. So buckle up. It ain't over yet. No, it ain't. And we're what, five seconds into storm season this year? Yep. May 2020 was the hottest May ever recorded since record-keeping began in 1880. That's according to Europe's climate reporting service Copernicus. NASA and NOAA are expected to reach similar findings in coming weeks. The new hottest ever May record means that 2020 is on track to be one of the top two hottest years ever recorded. June is also likely to be among the hottest, with officials across the country now scrambling to adapt emergency cooling centers to protect residents from the double threats of extreme extreme heat and the coronavirus. Mm. Why didn't you warn us about this extreme heat coming our way, Desi? <laughs> I believe I did. Oh. Man-made global warming is undermining infrastructure in the Arctic. Melting permafrost caused a giant fuel tank to collapse in Russia's Arctic Circle, causing a 135-square-mile oil spill wow. along a major river and nearly all of its tributaries, which officials say could take decades to recover. So the permafrost just gave way because of the heat, and then the entire tank, which was resting on the permafrost, collapsed? Yes. Oy. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin declared a state of emergency and sharply rebuked regional officials for not announcing the spill for two days. In the Arctic, roads and even entire cities have been built on permafrost that is now melting. What could possibly go wrong? Meanwhile, here in the U.S., while the country is focused on massive civil rights protests against police brutality and the global pandemic, the Trump administration is striking new blows against the environment and public health with a number of major rollbacks. On Friday, President Trump reopened a protected marine sanctuary off the coast of New England to commercial fishing. Established by the Obama administration in 2016, the whole point of the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument was to allow endangered right whales and other critical overfished marine species a chance to recover. Trump late last week also enacted sweeping new rollbacks of public health protections, directing federal agencies to use the Coronavirus National Emergency Declaration as an excuse to waive long-standing environmental laws in order to ram through federal permits for new mines, pipelines, and other projects. Of course, shock doctrine politics. Trump recently blocked communities from having a say over polluting projects built in their neighborhoods and moved to block states and tribes from vetoing pipelines and other projects that could pollute their waterways. Is it November 3rd yet? No. And the Trump Environmental Protection Agency also last week proposed monumental changes in how the agency crafts rules for air pollution limits under the Clean Air Act in order to hamstring future administrations from attempting to curtail toxic pollutants. This new rule change blocks the agency from considering any public health benefits when calculating the cost benefit of new regulations. Last month, the Trump EPA rolled back a rule on mercury pollution from coal plants by disallowing public health co-benefits. Now, the new proposal would expand that to all new clean Air Act regulations to make it appear that pollution standards are just too costly to industry to not poison Americans. But another administration can come in and roll back the rollbacks, can they not? They can, but it is very difficult now and would probably have to go through a very long litigation process. Of course. For much more on all of these delightful stories and more, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks yes. to my guest today, Chuck Collins of Inequality.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That, of course, is thanks to those of you who support our work. We are 100% listener-funded. Those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. Always good to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time burning down the house. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.